in your Bible, please. Colossians chapter 1. As we continue and actually bring to conclusion our mini-series on the prison prayers of the Apostle Paul. This prayer in Colossians is the last of four prayers from his first Roman imprisonment. The first one led us to this series. Remember in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Each one of these prison prayers is a prayer for intimate insight. This first one that we looked at that began this series was a prayer for the Philippians who were very special, you'll remember, to the Apostle Paul. Philippian church was the first one to be established on the European continent. They were a church that participated with him in the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the very beginning until He presently now writes, A.D. 61, throughout his entire ministry. So they had a very special place in the heart of the Apostle Paul. And this prayer is very specific. His prayer for them is to have intimate insight into their performance. That they may be performing, that they may be doing that which is well-pleasing to the Lord, that they may be a people to the praise and glory of God. We then looked at the very first of the four prayers from prison, or from that hired home, more literally, in Rome. That was Ephesians chapter 1. First of the prison epistles at verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he works in Christ Jesus. And he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
Now a prayer for the church at Ephesus. And this prayer concerns God's plan. He wants them, as is true of each one of these four prayers, to have intimate insight into the plan that God has. And that plan has a glorious future for those who are the beloved, those who belong, those who by faith are the children of God, those who have been born anew. Remember Jesus saying, you cannot see nor enter in to the kingdom of God apart from being born again. And so it is that when one trusts Christ as Savior, he is born from above. He now, we now, are part of the beloved. And that gives to us a birthright. We have a hope. It's not a hope so, it's a hope sure. It's an assurance that we have a glorious future awaiting us simply because we belong. We are his beloved. We have been born again, born from above. This prayer for the church at Ephesus that they might have that intimate insight into the hope that is there. Also, an inheritance. Peter tells us we have been born anew to a glorious hope that has an inheritance incorruptible that does not fade away, secure, reserved for us in heaven. And Paul is praying that they might have that intimate insight into this plan that God has for his own. It has an inheritance attached to it. A birthright, assurance of being with him. A bequeathed right. We are the moment we believed in Christ placed as adult sons. We have everything that God himself has provided for his own. He withheld nothing. He withholds nothing. But we are yet to experience an inheritance. It's that which he bequeathed to us. The scriptures don't give us great detail. It just reminds us that this is an inheritance can't fade away. It's an inheritance that is awaiting all of those who are the children of God. And so his prayer is for them to experience, have intimate insight into this plan of hope, inheritance, and also, right now, a plan that has provided for you in this life the power of the resurrected Christ. His prayer was that they might be experiencing what it means to live daily by the empowerment of the personal presence of Christ, his Holy Spirit in us. He then gives us in Ephesians, the third chapter, 
the second prayer in Ephesians. Remember I said there are four, two of them in Ephesians, one in Philippians, and the last one that we're looking at again this morning. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, we're children of God, that he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through, the, through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, the intimate insight with all the saints, what is the width, length, depth, height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. A prayer to have more intimate insight into his person. That Christ living in you might become more and more real in your life to such a degree that he fills your life. And he is a God of great, infinite power to fill our lives. Remember, we saw how the fullness of God, in order to be fully comprehended, has revealed himself through his names in the scripture. Elohim, almighty God, the creator. Jehovah Jireh. The God who provides. Abraham about to plunge the knife through his son, Isaac. And there in the thicket caught the ram. The provision of substitute. Yahweh. Jehovah. I am the eternal one. The one who has no beginning, no end. The one who from out, from within himself, all things consist. And then, Papa, Abba, Father. His prayer was that the believers here in Ephesus might be Experiencing the intimacy of insight into the fullness of the person of God in Christ Jesus indwelling us. And that brought us to the last of the prison prayers that we have been looking at the last couple of weeks. Colossians, this morning, verse 9, For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, that is, their love in the Spirit, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And we took time to look at the will of God. It's not something mystical. God has revealed very clearly that his will for us is our sanctification. Paul writes to the church of Thessalonians. This is the will of God. 
your sanctification, you're being set apart unto God. God's will is for you to be experiencing what it means to be totally, completely set apart unto himself. Paul puts it this way in his epistle to the church at Rome. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The will of God is that which God desires us to be experiencing what it means to be set apart fully unto him. And it begins this separation with a surrender. It has to begin there. There's no other place to begin. We must surrender ourselves to him. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may Walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. This will, which is our sanctification, this will that begins with our surrender of self to him, is a will in which he desires us to be walking in. It's a new life. Romans chapter 6, we saw that we are to be walking in newness of life. We've been baptized, spiritually placed into Christ's death, didn't leave us there, and raised with him unto newness of life, which we are now to be walking about in. And as we walk in this newness of life, it is Christ in us. I have been crucified with Christ. Yet I live. Yet, not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in this body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a new life. It's Christ in me. It's a life to be walked in his spirit. Walk in the spirit You will not satisfy the lusts of the flesh. Since we are in the Spirit, we should be walking in the Spirit. And this walk in the Spirit, in the new life that we have in Christ Jesus, is a yieldedness to his Holy Spirit in us. And that allows us to walk in love. Walk in love as Christ loved you, gave himself for you. Begins with surrender, continues by submission, and a service of sacrifice in behalf of others. Walk in love. Walk in light. You're in a wicked world, a dark world. And I've left you here for this purpose, to walk in light, to expose the darkness, to show the contrast of what it means to belong 
to be set apart, to be sanctified, a people unto God rather than a people of sin, of wickedness. And this morning, we come to the last aspect of his will, this new life that we have, that we are to be walking in by his spirit, showing his love, reflecting his light. That you may have the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, well-pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. This prayer for the church at Colossae, a church that Paul did not found. Epaphras was the human instrument that God used while Paul was in Ephesus. Epaphras coming to saving faith went back to his hometown of Colossae. And this church came into existence. Paul is praying for them. His prayer really encompasses the other three prayers that we looked at. It encompasses them because this prayer is that they may be pleasing, fully pleasing to him. Knowing his will, surrendered to that will, walking in that will, and working in accordance with that will. Going back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, Matthew, the sixth chapter. These are familiar words to many of you this morning. It is what is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. There are the Beatitudes, the blessings that Jesus shares. Chapter 6. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, When you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you and reward you ultimately openly. Jesus, in referring to doing good, 
caring for others, charitable deeds. He says you do them secretly. And you do them in such a way that you don't count the cost. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. There's a need to be met. You meet that need, not for the praise of men, not in any way parading what you're doing in order to be seen and to be heralded by men. But to understand that your father who sees what you're doing, your work, will reward you. Ultimately, openly, before himself. Look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on the earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not a matter of doing anything here and now for here and now. It's doing that which is pleasing to God for there and then. For his glory. And because of his mercy, because of his love, because of his grace, there is reward before him, which we will experience openly to the praise of God. Because it was his doing anyway. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Evidence of what is genuine, what is good, what is producing what it has been designed to do is to the praise of God. Anything else? Cast away. Judged. But by their fruits, they are known. 
Romans chapter 6. We've been there before in this study. We return. This time at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Paul asks these questions about sin in the life of the one who has been saved from their sin. And here he makes it very clear. Because we're no longer under the law, but under grace, does that give us liberty to do whatever we want to do? We are free. Free, liberated from the curse of the law. Remember, the law is holy and righteous and just. It declares that. But the law could not deliver holiness, righteousness, justice. What the law did was condemn. It convicts one of sin. It condemns in that sin. But we've been free, set free, purchased out from under the law, and set free unto God, separated unto him. There is no condemnation, no judgment awaiting any who are in Christ Jesus. That's the penalty of sin gone. There is therefore now no control of sin in the life of one who has been purchased out of sin. The power of sin has been broken. We need not to serve it any longer. And ultimately, to the praise of Almighty God, we have been delivered from the very presence of sin. Ultimately, with that hope that is ours to be in his presence, with that inheritance that we await, there is a perfection, a purity with him forever where sin is gone. Never to exist. All of that is because we have been set free. But in that freedom, in that liberty that we have, no longer under the constraints, the condemnation of the law, we are not free to sin. That liberty does not give us a license. In fact, what it does is lay a heavier responsibility. We're no longer under the law. It's unfortunate that many a Christian finds himself in a fellowship, in a church, which with all good intention, but lack of understanding, set forth certain rules and regulations, certain things to do and not to do that will enable you to be pleasing to God. No. No. Free from.
from the law. Any law. Any regulation. I have a relationship with the true and the living God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And that new relationship is a relationship of love. That's the governing principle by which we live. Not law, not rules, regulations, a relationship of love. I don't do the things which I should not do because I love him. I do do the things that are pleasing to him because I love him. Therefore, we have no license to sin since we are no longer under the law. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, teaching, to which you were delivered. See, the change that takes place from being dead in our trespasses and sin and alive in our Savior is a spiritual transaction which has absolutely nothing to do with anything but faith. Believing what God has revealed concerning his Son, our sin bearer. It has nothing to do with raising a hand. It has nothing to do with walking an aisle. It has nothing to do with anything outward. It has everything to do with our faith in him. That's what's changed everything. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of teaching to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness to holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. The natural man, we can do nothing that is right before God. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We could do 
nothing right before God in our sin. But we are no longer slaves to sin, set free. Now to produce fruit of righteousness that is right before him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Corinthian church was a very contentious church. had a lot of factions in it. It was a very carnal church, very fleshy, very much doing the things of the world. It's a corrupt church. It did those things which were of no benefit to those that were involved with those things that were being done and certainly were an abomination before God. So it's a contentious church. It's a carnal church. It's a corrupt church. It's also a confused church. And the latter part of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth addresses some of those areas of confusion. But this contentious carnal church he addresses in chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal flesh, as a babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. Even now you are still not able, for you're still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers, servants, through whom you believed. As the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus, with his disciples, asked this question, Who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah. Others say you're you're a prophet, that's for sure. Who do you say that I am? 
Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hath not revealed that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. You are Peter, Petros, fragment of a rock. And upon this rock, Petra, the boulder, what you have just by revelation from the Father, declared that I am the Christ, the anointed of God. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the foundation, the rock, Christ Jesus. That's the foundation that faithful servants from the very beginning have laid. And then there is the building upon that foundation. There is that which is being built upon him to his glory. That is, if the ones who build it, build it, with the proper material. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that which is valuable to God, wood, hay, stubble or straw, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be Delivered, saved, yet so as through fire. There is a day that is coming which will declare what is done on the foundation of Christ as to whether it is gold, silver, and precious stone of value to his praise or worthless wood, hay, straw of no value. And how it's going to be revealed? Fire. Look at 2 Corinthians. Chapter 5. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we are, we who are 
in this tent groom being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us his spirit as a guarantee. There is awaiting us a tent, a tabernacle, a vehicle in which we will be forever with the Lord. Right now, we're not in that vehicle. We're in a temporary body. And in that body, he's given to us his Holy Spirit, guaranteeing that what is yet to come will come. What God promises, he performs. So we're always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul's letters will eventually get back to our study in Philippians. He makes that very clear. He was struggling with staying or going to be with Christ. Going to be with Christ, far better. But in that struggle, he comes to a realization that he has a purpose for being still here. It's for them. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good, valuable, bad, no value. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, the righteous judgment of God, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust we are well known to in your conscience. There's a time of coming for the child of God. Be before the Lord. And those things done in this body, in this life, will be put to the fire, the test to see of what value it was. Gold, silver, precious stones, his praise, wood, hay, stubble, nothing, worthless. And by the mercy and grace of God, we ain't carrying any of that stuff throughout eternity. Burning it up. But what really was done to his eternal praise remains. Time does not permit this morning to go to all the verses but I'll remind you of probably the most familiar for by grace are we saved through faith it's not of ourselves it's the gift of God that is the grace and the faith Lest anyone should boast. No one can stand before Almighty God and say, 
I made it. Here I am. By grace are we saved through faith. That not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Unto good works. Which we have been foreordained to be walking about in them. As we surrender to his will, as we walk in that will, we are to work. We are to be doing those things which in this body, at this point in time, are to his praise and the benefit of others. That's why James writes about faith. Faith without works. It's worthless. Dead. You say you have faith? I'll show you my faith by my works. We're all going to stand before him, not in a final judgment, but in a judgment of that which was done in the body. Either good or no good. We just went through a unique experience in Naples. September 27th. little guy named Ian showed his head. It was devastating. And in that devastation, God was providing an opportunity for his church, for his children to respond in a way that was either disregarding the needs of others or responding to those needs. Unique opportunity. And by the grace of God, each one of us have responded in doing that which is pleasing to him or not doing anything. And certainly, that is not pleasing to him. But it shouldn't take a catastrophic hurricane to make us aware of the opportunities that we have. See a brother in need? You have the ability to meet that need? You do it. Oh, not before men. But you do it. You do it, not counting the cost, left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing. But you do it 
to the praise of him. And there is reward. And so it is that we come to the end of this mini-series on the prison prayers of Paul. Prayer for the Philippians to perform to the praise of God. Prayer for the Ephesians to understand to delve deeply into the plan of God. Hope, inheritance, power. To enter into a more intimate, personal appreciation for his person who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, what he's going to do. And to be a people pleasing to him. By doing his will until he comes. Thank you, Lord, these moments again this morning to allow your word to speak to our hearts and to allow us to respond as a people, as a person, well-pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.